You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning, everyone. Good good to see you. Um, Happy Lord's Day. Uh, We'll be looking at um, Matthew chapter 1. So uh, if you have a phone, you have a Bible. You should anyway, uh, since they're free. Um, and I think it would be uh, decidedly helpful to you to be able to see what we're discussing. And if not, then guess, guess what? You're just in the same situation most Christians were for quite a number of decades uh, when the churches first were meeting. And of course, not everybody would have had a copy of what was reading, and they became very good listeners. So maybe, maybe men were different back then. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they were better listeners. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so uh, we uh, uh, last week um, discussed um, the first uh, number of stories of of, uh, of Matthew, the first eight stories, sort of all at once. Uh, so let's read the first one, and then we'll um, set up some discussion here uh, about it. Oh, before I mention that, I was going to say that uh, I, I said last week I teach at Sanford part-time, and then... Uh, otherwise run IPUB, the Institute for the Public Understanding of the Bible, uh, where we promote meaningful conversation, meaningful conversation with the non-believing about the Bible. And uh, so I've been working on a series called John for Skeptics, the Gospel of John for Skeptics, and you can find it at our website or ipub.org. You can find it on our YouTube channel. But the idea for these kinds of resources is to promote meaningful conversation. They're the, they're the kind of thing you're, you're supposed to be able to share with skeptics, with people who don't believe. And I myself was an atheist uh, prior to becoming a Christian. So, um, you know, I, th- I think you, it's very, uh, it's easier than you think. If you can keep your body temperature down, it's very, it's easier than you think to have a meaningful conversation about the Bible. People actually are genuinely interested. They're just afraid the conversation is going to turn into an, either an ins- insurance pitch or, uh, or the temperature in the room is going to rise. But otherwise, people are, are perfectly happy to have a conversation, but you, it's nice to have some content to discuss. So that's the idea behind these kinds of videos is how would a skeptic look at the Gospel of John and what are some challenges to a skeptical mindset? It's not that skepticism is, is bad. We're all skeptical, actually. It's part of our modern psyche to be skeptical of things. Uh, I bet if I picked a few topics, I could easily dig up some skepticism in you uh, about cultural differences and so on in these days. So, um, uh, but how to, uh, how would one approach the Gospel of John then with that kind of skeptical mind and what are some, what are some obvious challenges? Uh, and then uh, we do this podcast, which you might find helpful also um, because I'm, it's a atheist that, I do the interviews with, um, meaning we're co-interviews, co-interviewers. He's a former Christian, now an atheist. I'm a former atheist, now Christian. We're very good friends. We have a very good relationship. I can't think of the last time that we've had a like actual real argument. You know, We discuss a lot of things. We definitely have strong dif- differences of opinion. We retain a very good friendship and a very close friendship. And uh, I don't pretend that we're closer than I could be with fellow Christians. That's nonsense. And he doesn't pretend either <laughs> the other way around. But we can still have a very good friendship. Our families uh, have a good friendship. And uh, so we interviewed different uh, groups. Uh, we interviewed uh, Atheists for Liberty, 
uh, this last spring. I mentioned them only because <clears throat> my question for this group, my first question was, uh, you call yourselves atheists for liberty. Um, are other atheists not for liberty? And this uh, public relations manners, manager said, no. Those groups, most of the main groups, are not for liberty. And then he proceeded to tell me that his group uh, was all canceled 10 years ago, and they saw this sort of cancel culture uh, phenomenon 10 years ago. Uh, and now, though they retain a very strong atheism and are happy to argue with me about our difference of beliefs, which we do, because I've gotten to know them, but, um, but they actually want to team up with Christians who see how dangerous this is to uh, the First Amendment. So it's a very strange um, alliance, I guess you would say, between some Christian groups and these groups who are atheists. For what it's worth, anyway, you might find the podcast interesting as well, and also interesting to share. Again, it's a, it's a conversation. Uh, hopefully we're modeling the kind of conversations we can have. It's called The Divide. That's probably a good idea to give the name, huh? Uh, the Divide by iPub. So, and we discuss issues that divide us. All right, so let's read. Uh, chapter 1 and verse 1, the book of the birth, as the actual word there in Greek, uh, Genesis. It's the word Genesis, by the way. The book of the Genesis, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and so on, all the way down to verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asaph, all the way down to verse 11. To Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, uh, and here we go again, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and we could keep going all the way down to verse 16, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, or the Messiah. If you didn't know, the word Christ is the word Messiah in Greek, like our verb christen. They both mean to anoint, the anointed one. And so, verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So, <clears throat> what we discussed last week was that in the first two chapters of Matthew, we have eight stories, eight stories that form a narrative, and it's a continuous narrative if you, I won't go through the whole thing again, but if you go and read it, you'll see that the jumps between the chapters are not major breaks. They are designed to be a carefully woven narrative of eight stories, and they lead you to the Sermon on the Mount. It's a nice little introduction to the beginnings of the story of Jesus. And we notice that there were two events out of the eight that form uh, mountain peaks on the horizon that fill your vision, if you're reading carefully, they should fill up your vision in those first eight stories. And those are those two events are the birth of Jesus and then the baptism of Jesus. 
The birth comes in chapter 1, the baptism in chapter 3. I said, I say chapters 1 to 2, but if I said that, I meant chapters 1 to 4. I feel like I said 1. Anyway, chapters 1 to 4, 8 stories. So, chapters 1 to 2 have 4 stories. Chapters 3 to 4 have 4 stories. And in each half of this group of 8 stories, so you got 4 stories over here, 4 stories over here. In each of the two halves, you have one of these big events. And the two events just happen to be the second of the four stories in each of their halves. They're the second story. And each of the two halves, the little uh, foothills around the mountain peaks, those stories are all related to those two big events. So in the first four stories, we have the preparations for the birth of Jesus. We just read them, the genealogy preparations for the coming of the Messiah. And then we have the event of the birth, followed by effects of the, that birth, the responses like the visit of the Magi and the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem. These are effects from the birth. And then we have a story about the preparations for the baptism and then the baptism itself, and then two more stories that show us the responses and effects of that baptism. So the birth and the baptism of Jesus are the mountain peak events. And if you were to put them side by side and look at them closely, there, there's some interesting connections between them. For example, uh, the birth of Jesus uh, has a, almost uh, a scandal attached to it because Joseph is resistant we can understand why. <laughs> We're not. Uh, so why is he resistant? Because it says, Joseph being a righteous man was wanting to put Mary away. That is to say, to divorce her. Doesn't quite sound right in English. But if you're engaged in, in the Jewish culture back then, you would have to divorce. So they were engaged. So he being a righteous man, that was a barrier. And of course, we all know when Jesus comes to John the baptizer in chapter 3 and wants to get baptized, John is a barrier. He resists. And Jesus says to him, well, thus it is necessary for him to be baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Joseph being a righteous man was almost a barrier. Whereas here, Jesus is saying that to fulfill all righteousness, I need to be baptized. And of course, the angel says to Joseph that what's happened with Mary is not immoral. It was a moral barrier. He was a righteous man. He's told that she has conceived by the Holy Spirit, holiness was at work, not immorality, the opposite of immorality, holiness. The Holy Spirit was instrumental in producing, of course, uh, Jesus as a human being. You can explain that mystery to me after our session. And when Jesus got baptized, any references to that Holy Spirit? <laughs> he descended from on high and he anointed Jesus, thus marking him out as the 
Messiah, the anointed one. And then, of course, when Jesus is born, what is the quote from Isaiah? The virgin shall conceive and shall have a son. Joseph was told he shall have a son. Mary shall have a son. And his name shall be called God with us. <laughs> I mean, that's Emmanuel. He shall have a son and his name shall be called God with us, or she shall have a son. And then at the baptism, do you remember what the voice said out of heaven? <laughs> you are, this is my beloved son. And whose voice was that? <laughs> I'll give you one guess. <laughs> he is the son of God. So you see the two events. If you want to know who Jesus really was, the two events are related. And Matthew is trying to show you some connections. I won't go too deeply beyond that just to point them out. Okay? They're worth thinking about, the two events side by side, to try and understand who Jesus was. Now, we're going to try and cover the first two stories today. We'll see. That's our goal. Um, and I have now questions for you. As I said last week, I'll have some questions for you. Uh, and I say always before any kind of open discussion that I know there are verbal cheetahs in the room who race to say something, and that's totally fine with me. Uh, but then that's a good time after you've said something to not keep saying things <laughs> and let someone else say something. Uh, and of course, uh, as is usually the case, most of you are like me. You sit back and you wait and say nothing. Uh, even though you have a thousand thoughts in your head, you refuse to say anything for some reason. I don't know why. Well, I think I know why. I'm the same. I sit in the back corner and uh, analyze and critique and don't want to say something uh, stupid and so on. But uh, let's not think of it that way. Let's just think of it as trying to get some ideas out. Uh, this is one place we should be able to talk about these things openly. So uh, this is preparations then for the coming of the Messiah. And I'm going to raise one question, which I don't want you to answer yet, but I do want you to ponder. When everything had gone sour in the times of the judges, well, let's even go before that. Let's go earlier. When Israel had been enslaved in Egypt and Pharaoh was trying to drive them into the Mediterranean Sea, why didn't God send the Messiah then rather than Moses? When Everything had gone wrong in the times of the judges. Now, over centuries, there was no king in those days. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Why didn't God raise up King Jesus instead of King David? Or how about when everything went, well, I don't want to say went south. That's not a very nice thing to say especially for someone like myself who's not from the South. Although I guess I'm from the South now. But by the way, it took about 15 years before I thought, that's not a very nice phrase. I don't like that phrase. <laughs> it's personally offensive, you know. Why didn't God send Jesus after the exile when Israel came back into the land rather than Zerubbabel and Shealtiel and so on? Ever pondered that? He could have, could he not? But he didn't. 
So the genealogy anyway is preparations. And we should assume then that what God did was best and wisest. God was preparing not just Israel, but the world for the coming of Messiah. And we should assume the world and Israel wasn't ready. And we can point out some obvious benefits for God waiting. For example, when Jesus arrived in Palestine, he didn't have to preach for 66 chapters like Isaiah did against idolatry. That is to say, the actual worship of false gods and foreign idols. The Jews of Jesus' day had learned a long and painful lesson that ran through many, many centuries of their history. They couldn't quite shake pagan idolatry. But by the time Jesus arrived, the vast majority of Jews held very strongly and strictly to Jewish monotheism. And that was a huge advancement. And as I said, took many, many centuries of hard lessons to learn. So we could point out some, there's others. Joseph, after all, how did he become a righteous man? <laughs> well, there's a long history behind that, isn't there? That led to him being a righteous man as a son of Abraham. So there were historical forces, that is to say, uh, preparing the nation and, of course, the world. We could go into many other things, but it's worth pondering for a while. What, why this time? Paul wrote to the Galatians, it was at the right time. In chapter 4, he says that God sent his son into the world. All right, so the question then is that I have for you, and this is the contribution part, how does this list of names in any way tell us the things God was doing to prepare Israel for the coming of Messiah? What is it about this list that uh, tells us anything about God's preparations? I don't, a lot of people tend to skip the list. I skipped some things, didn't I? And then I read some other things. Hmm. <laughs> it's long. It's long. <laughs> Do you think that's a lesson? It would be for me. It is a lesson, isn't it? Yeah, it took a long time. Anyone ever raised a kid? <laughs> and how long did it take to get them ready for the world? The answer is, are they? I'm sorry, are you suggesting they're ready for the world? <laughs> you think they're ready for the world? <laughs> oh, they're married by now. Oh, you think they're ready for parenting, are they? Uh, it takes a long time to prepare humans, doesn't it? So that's one lesson. Excellent. Any other thing that stands out to you? Even if it's just a question, maybe it's relevant, maybe it's not. It's a story of God's people, both in the macro and oftentimes in the micro. Yeah. And their response to God. Yeah. And where, how, like when you say it's macro and micro, where are you getting that from? I think you're right, but what is it about say, it? I would that, say the macro. Mm -hmm. 
There's a long story, so to speak. Yeah. And the micro would be places like Uriah is mentioned. One one name. Mm. Mm. And those, I guess we would call those hiccups, right? If you've read Luke's genealogy, you'll notice that he follows his formula uh, religiously, so to speak. He doesn't alter his formula. So and so and so, the son of so and so, the son of so and so, the son of so and so. He doesn't. He never alters his formula. He takes you right back to Adam from Jesus. You read Matthew. He mostly stays with his formula, but as Don has pointed out, he, there's these occasional hiccups where he adds, I guess, is it a hiccup or a sneeze? I guess it's a sneeze that's an extra information, extra air. So he sneezes a few times in the midst of his genealogy and adds information that doesn't seem necessary. Yeah, so that's one thing. Uh, we'll come back to that. Uh, anything else? Someone, someone I thought was going to add something. Yes, it, yeah, the first verse, in fact, even, says the son of David, the son of Abraham. It doesn't, and then it stops. It doesn't talk about the son of Adam or the son of Noah, even though he clearly is. But these two people are, are two of the major houses of the family of Israel. So, in introducing Jesus, Matthew has the house of Israel as his main concern, and most people think his main audience. So, excellent. Really good. You were going to say? Well, he's also tracing the seed of the promise that comes from Genesis. But it ends in Joseph, but it's, it seems like it should go to Mary. Yes. Yeah, 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 right. Like uh, the fact that we include Joseph, but then it has there's another little sneeze there, isn't it? He breaks the formula to get you to Jesus because he's he has the virgin birth in mind in that part. Also, hugely significant in the preparations, uh, understanding who Jesus is. So, um, I think excellent things. Uh, anyone can add any as they want to go, as we go along. The first thing that strikes me when we look at these names is that if I were to show you a list of names that brought us to the 21st century in America, and I decided to use the presidents, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, each name wouldn't just be a name. They would represent something to us about history there would be things we associate with Lincoln that stand out, that are a story, as, as Don was saying. There's a history. And of course, this is what's in part sets Christianity completely apart from all of, of the non-biblical religions of the world. Christianity insists that there is a history behind God's interactions with the world and with Thomas Jefferson impressive guy in many ways, God didn't directly interact with Jefferson like he did with Isaac and Jacob. And there's accounts of this history, records, so that even, uh, so as we get, say, to our second story, we're going to get into the story uh, where it quotes Isaiah. You see, there's a record from history that long precedes Jesus. And Isaiah 
spoke about things to come in the future. So this is something that is then verifiable. It's falsifiable, maybe the key term. It's falsifiable. Did Jesus fulfill what Isaiah said was going to happen or not? So that history is an important part of giving the, the person whom Matthew is trying to persuade to become a disciple of Jesus a grounds for trusting the message, for trusting Jesus. Because ultimately, that is what God wants of us, is to trust him. It's where Eve went wrong, Adam went wrong, is they didn't trust God. They didn't trust his goodness. They didn't trust his wisdom. Actually, they didn't doubt his existence. They weren't doubting his existence. If I may say, like the psalmist said, they weren't foolish enough to doubt his existence. And yet, they didn't trust God. They didn't trust his wisdom and his goodness. And that was the beginning of sorrow and death. So, uh, history gives a sense of confidence to what we believe. And this is one of the reasons God took a while to create a story, a template, a kind of brochure you could use, you know, if you travel to Italy or something, the south of Italy, and you, you want to get to your little villa you get to stay in, you know, you, you hopefully you have a picture of it, maybe not a brochure anymore, I guess they use, we just use iPhones, and uh, you look at the, you know, the pictures of it. And so when you drive up, you say, yep, that's it, because you had the pictures ahead of time. And it confirms what you were expecting, uh, the details of it. All right, so that's uh, one aspect, the, the sort of uh, macro uh, thing. And then we have these little subtle details, these little sneezes. And the sneezes all seem to be very closely related because they all relate to odd births, don't they? They're about births. And the oddities that are sort of salt and peppered into the genealogy of Jesus. History can feel... Hmm, out of control? Is that about right? It feels all so chaotic and random. But was it? Was it really all just foolish people doing stupid and sinful things? And there was no orchestration at all? Because as you get to the end of this genealogy, Matthew points out actually there was some order, some overarching order to this plan to prepare Israel for Messiah. It actually divides into three groups of 14 generations. And the division point, you only need one thing to divide, you know, into three pieces. So what was the division thing? What was the divider that created the, the three parts? The monarchy, of course. That's why when you get to David, Matthew reminds you he was the king. And then what follows is a list of the kings. David's descendants, until those kings end at the time of the exile. And then the list has no more kings until <laughs> Jesus. And Joseph, when he comes, to, when the angel comes to Joseph, he says, Joseph, you son of David. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> the monarchy's about to be revived. <laughs> so, uh, these uh, little sneezes then have to do with birth. So let's just pick one out. Let's pick out the story of Judah. Because early on we're told that um, 
the, uh, this is in uh, verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And then it just goes on with Perez. So we didn't know, need to know anything about Zerah, and we didn't need to be reminded about Tamar. In fact, you probably wouldn't uh, have wanted to be reminded of it. It's in Genesis 38, in the midst of the story of Joseph, and it's a rather untoward story. There's a verse in there that commonly you might not even read <laughs> at the family Bible hour. <laughs> uh, so what happened? Uh, well, Judah, of course, had uh, three sons, and the two older ones were wicked. And they were killed by the Lord, it says. And the third uh, one uh, died uh, uh, and had, excuse me, the second one's wife, the first one's wife, the oldest one's wife, uh, needed to be remarried according to the Leveret principles of that day, even though it's pre-Moses. Moses. She was to be married off to the youngest son, but of course, he, because he was the only surviving son, but he was too young. So Judah said, you'll have to wait, Tamar, until he grows up and then you can marry him. Now, they didn't know it, but this is the genealogy of Messiah. It had to happen. But how did it happen? Well, Judah was lonely after his wife died, and he was a widower, and he went into, well, he thought he went into a prostitute, but actually it was Tamar, dressed up as a prostitute with a veil. And he said, what, uh, what would it cost, you know? And she, he said, I'll give you a young kid of the flock. And she, he didn't have a goat. He said he would send it. So he asked her, what would she like? She said, I'll take your, your, your insignia. So he gave her his seal and his staff, which would be like his authority, his signature, his license, you know, and uh, social security number. So she takes that. And then, of course, she becomes pregnant and he wants to have her burned to death. And then she sends his staff and his signet seal. And he knows he has been the one who was immoral, both for waiting too long. He waited and waited and waited and wouldn't marry her off back to his youngest son, even when he had grown up and she had grown impatient and feared she would never be able to raise up a child in the name of her family, her first husband. What she did was immoral, of course. What he did was immoral. He said it. He said, she is more righteous than I, which wasn't saying a lot. And it's interesting when you get to this blessings from Jacob, the father, at the end of Genesis. He starts to go through all the sons, the 12 sons, and give them. He turns to Reuben, his firstborn. And the question is, will Reuben be the one who is ultimately the, the tribe through whom the king comes to Israel? No, because Reuben had slept with uh, his father's concubine. And then he turned to Simeon and Levi, the next two sons in line for the throne. No, because they had butchered a bunch of Shechemites in religious zeal. And then he came to Judah, the fourth, and you would think, no chance for Judah. <laughs> and actually, he says it will be through Judah that the king comes. Through Judah? Why Judah? Well, because of what happened in between 
By the way, the way in which he actually explains this to Judah, he says the staff will not depart from Judah, the, the royal staff. But you see, he had given it away earlier in the book for Tamar. But the promise was he wouldn't lose it again. But why did God pick Judah of all those first four sons since he had done something immoral as well? Well, because, I mean, it doesn't say why, actually. So we'll call this a theory. When, um, when Joseph's, uh, Joseph's brothers came to Egypt, you know, the first time because there was a famine in the land and they got food, and, you know, jo- Joseph set them up, and they had to go back to Egypt before they ever even got to their father. And uh, they had to tell him that they had another son. There was another son that hadn't come with them, the youngest one, Benjamin. And so when they got back to uh, the land of Israel and there was, they had run through the food, they had to go back down to Egypt. And Jacob said, you know, that's fine. But they said, we have to take Benjamin with us. He, he, he commanded, this was Joseph, of course, that we must show up with Benjamin or we'll die. So... Jacob refused to let them go and take, J- and take Benjamin with them until Judah stepped up and he said, if Benjamin's life is lost, I give my life in his place. That little template tells you something, doesn't it, about the future king that would come through Judah. That was the attitude (laughs) that God was looking for to teach his people about the coming Messiah. He would give his life for his brothers. So those little sneezes (laughs) are history. Each one is a little history and I just picked out one. And are those bells telling us we're done I guess. So, uh, anyway, uh, we have something uh, then to work with. The question is, what's the biggest lesson? What's the macro lesson? And the macro lesson is this, that for all of God's direct interventions to save Israel countless times and to teach them through his law, and to provide kings upon kings, all designed to govern them. The law, of course, is for governance. That the macro lesson is this, that for all of God's trying to help them govern themselves, in the end, the project of self-governance failed. Israel could never govern themselves well. And you know what the answer to that is? (laughs) Our next story. That's the lead-in, you see, (laughs) to the next story. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that this history would inspire and give confidence to our faith and equip us 
to be messengers like Matthew was a writer, to have meaningful conversations about the gospel with people who either don't believe or are struggling in their belief. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.